0: So Luke 17, verses 1 to 19. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now, and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get ready yourself, and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well.
1: Thanks, Sylvia. Well, friends, uh, isn't it great to be able to gather together, whether it's online or in person, but to be able to sit together under God's Word, just to help us to kind of frame our thoughts tonight. I've got a question for your reflection, not something you have to talk with people around you. You can see it there in your leaflet, just at the top of the sermon outline. Just a few seconds for you to ponder. What are the things that you are most thankful for in life? I don't mean just, you know, the trivial things that pop into mind from today or this last week, but... As you take just 10 or 15 seconds, what, what are some of the things that you really deeply treasure in life? The things that you are most grateful to God for? And then I'll get us started together. Give it some thought. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word this evening, please teach us afresh what a precious treasure the gift of faith in Jesus is, that, like the man with leprosy who we have just read about, we too would be overflowing with thankfulness to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, if you've been with us over the last few weeks as we've been making our way through Luke's Gospel, I'm sure it stood out to you a little like it has to me that Jesus has had some pretty strong words for his disciples, some, some fairly stern warnings, some fairly stern rebukes for the, the Pharisees and others that were listening on as well. And it probably stands out to you from today's passage that, well, this is no exception, is it? He kind of continues rolling with that theme. But I hope that after our time together tonight you will actually see that there is also great refreshment for our souls in this as well. And if you keep the passage open before you, you see on the the leaflet that you received, three points that we're going to consider uh, from our passage. First, we're going to see just how precious faith in Jesus is. And then flowing out of that, the, the humility and the thankfulness that follow. But it is true that Jesus begins with some stern words. And to make his first point... He begins with a really stern warning to help us to appreciate just how serious things are. In verse 1, he said, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Now, When we think of stern warnings, we kind of appreciate that in most areas of life the really stern warnings are there for when there are some pretty important things at stake, particularly when there are precious things at stake. My wife and I had to kind of come to grips with this just this last week when our energetic two-year-old son discovered what happens when you hit the glass top of the outside table with dad's hammer that his foolishly left lying on the deck, having done some work. I've got a photo on the screen uh, for you. Thanks, Lewis, if you can show us the photo of uh, the, the scene of the crime. Uh, it's fairly dramatic. Um, hit one of those tabletops. I think they call it tempered glass. Someone else can um, clarify that if it's the wrong term. It kind of explodes and makes a terrible mess. Uh, and, 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 and I just sort of stood there and thought, wow, that, that, just, that just happened. Um, But I have to say, it was one of those times when it struck me that people are far more important than tables. I've never really given that much thought before, but I thought about it then, when my two-year-old son, who is standing there just wondering what on earth has just happened, was perfectly fine, even though glass has been thrown about four metres either side of him. And then it became a teachable moment, because it also occurred to me, that might not have been a table that he went at with a hammer. He has a younger, sorry, he has an older brother and a sister, and people are far more important than tables. So... Son, you need to understand, please don't hit glass with a hammer again, but more importantly, never, never, never hit a person with a hammer. Really important, teachable moment for a two-year-old. You see, we understand that stern warnings are necessary when there are precious things at stake. And Jesus begins here with something very precious, the faith of a fellow Christian. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, he said, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Jesus makes a pretty serious point in a couple of ways. First, he's giving us a reality check about just how precious faith in him is because it is always under threat. See, when Jesus warns of things that will cause people to stumble, he's not just wanting us to picture, you know, you might stub your toe and then kind of move on fairly quickly. He's using the idea that captures sort of really serious sin, the kind of thing that would lead people to stumble and actually fall away, turn away entirely from faith in him. So you could paraphrase what he's saying here to say, well, things that cause people to turn away from me are bound to come actually he's even more explicit but it's kind of it's kind of awkward to capture he uses this weird double negative to say it's impossible for things that will cause people to stumble not to come they will always be there and i think it's because trusting jesus has always been hard there've always been things that would that would threaten to entice people away from him it doesn't matter what the culture of the day has been it has always been countercultural to put your faith in jesus It has always been inconvenient if your goal is to live a comfortable life. That is the reality of trusting in Jesus in a world that has turned its back on him. Faith in Jesus is a very precious thing because it is constantly under threat. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, said Jesus, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck, than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And yes, that image is as confronting as it sounds. Uh, A millstone, if you're not familiar with the idea, is a great big piece of rock that does its work simply because it is really heavy. It's what was used to grind, grain into flour. Have one of those tied around your neck, can be thrown into the ocean, it's one-way traffic to the bottom. And I don't think you need to use your imagination to figure that that would be a pretty horrific way to die. And yet Jesus says... That would be a better outcome for you than if you were to cause someone to walk away from their faith in him. Faith in Jesus is a very precious thing. Now perhaps Jesus kind of was thinking of the Pharisees that he'd just rebuked in chapter 16, who we were reading about last week. They were religious leaders who had rejected Jesus themselves and they were leading other people away from faith in him. But did you notice... in the opening verse that we've just read, Jesus said this to his disciples. Disciples of Jesus have a very serious responsibility to each other. A responsibility not to turn another person away from trusting in Jesus. To be careful that in what we do and in what we say and how we treat each other, we don't turn anyone away from him. Because faith in Jesus is so precious. So be careful not to lead anyone away, Jesus begins. Well, he continues, but with a slightly more positive encouragement. Faith in Jesus is so precious. So be very careful to lead each other back. Read with me from verse 3. Jesus said to his disciples, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. It's got to be one of the simplest flow charts in the whole Bible. But there's nothing easy about it, is there? It's set out on the screen for us, those that like to see it, you know, written. So we go, yes, it really is that clear. If they sin, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Simple, but not easy. Because let's be honest though, we all know that we're going to sin and and at one point or another hurt each other. My kids, they've got this lovely little uh, storybook that pictures Christians together, kind of doing church, as being like echidnas going camping, sharing a tent together. Lovely visual image, covered in spikes in close proximity. You're bound to get spiked by someone. And Jesus says, this is the responsibility that we have to each other. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And in a culture like ours, rebuke, well, that's almost a dirty word, isn't it? It sounds harsh and abrupt and judgmental. But I actually want to help us to see that it's, it's actually wonderfully relational. This is a really rich picture of a community that understands that faith in Jesus is so precious. I want you to think about what it is not. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. What is that not? It's not lashing out and trying to get even. It's, it's not getting grumpy with them and then gossiping behind their back as if you want to quietly tear them down. It's not even ignoring them, shutting them out of your life, maybe choosing to, I don't know, go some other church that suits you a little bit better. It's a desire for a conversation. It's the pursuit of reconciliation. It's the concern for restored relationships. If you are sinned against, well, you are not responsible for that, but you are responsible for the way that you react. Not to walk away from relationship, but to engage in conversation. And if they repent, you forgive them. There is no complex decision tree here for the disciple of Jesus. For those who have experienced the grace of God showered upon us, that we would then extend it to others too. And of course, Jesus knows our hearts and our minds. He anticipates the legal loophole that we're looking for. How often do I need to do this, Jesus? Verse 4, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying to you, I repent, you must forgive them. And here, if you're anything like me, we we start that sceptical sort of thinking of of whether their repentance is genuine if they just keep repeatedly sinning. But the flow flow chart that Jesus gives is just as simple. If they repent, you must forgive them. Because faith in Jesus is precious. And every time a disciple of Jesus exercises grace to someone who has sinned against them, well, they reflect the grace that God has already shown them. So Jesus is calling his disciples with this stern warning and this bold encouragement to be a community that keeps pointing each other back to his grace. And as I've thought about this, well, if you've never had to, you know, forgive a brother or a sister who sinned against you, then I wonder whether that's simply because you haven't spent enough time with them. Because it seems to me that if we do, it will happen and we'll need to. But maybe this is equally a, a point just to prompt us all to reflect on whether there are people that we need to have that conversation with, to reflect God's grace shown to us onto them. But it's a pretty big ask, right? Endless forgiveness. Who could possibly accomplish that? Well, at least the apostles thought it was a challenging call. Increase our faith, they cried out to Jesus. Because it would take a very faith-filled person to forgive over and over and over again, wouldn't it? Well, would it? You see, Jesus shows us one more time how precious faith in him is because it is faith in him. Which means it's not actually about how big our faith is at all. Reading from verse 6, Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, we should actually all be chuckling here, it's just that it's church, and we don't chuckle in church, we're all too serious for that. But I think Jesus is actually, that got you in the middle of a drink. I think Jesus has actually been funny here. He's being funny with an absurd image because why on earth would anyone want to plant a tree in the sea? I mean, trees grow in dirt, not water. And even if you could, why would you want to? And if we knew anything about mulberry trees in Judea, well, we would know that they have incredibly deep root systems. They are remarkably resilient trees, very hard to uproot. So Jesus is actually being funny to, to gently come alongside us and say it's not about you at all. It's nothing to do with the size of your faith because even a tiny dose, as small as a mustard seed, even a tiny dose of faith in Jesus can do impossible things like like uproot a mulberry tree and plant it in the ocean or like enable your everyday average disciple to forgive again and again and again. Faith in Jesus is precious because it's faith in Jesus. When you trust in his wonderful grace, it is so transformative that that even the tiniest dose will enable the hardest heart to keep showing grace, if only it will keep looking to him. And I know as I've reflected on this, I've just found such great encouragement in this, (laughs) the times when I just feel inadequate for the task, like my sin is too great and my faith is too small to remember that it's not about me anyway. The faith in Jesus is so precious because he is so mighty, he is so loving, so good and and by his spirit he is so powerful to enable us to do things that on our own would seem impossible. Like forgiving your brother or sister seven times in a day. And that brings us to the second point in in our outline... As we're challenged again by Jesus' stern words to see that true faith is not only precious, but it is also humble. Because, and goodness me, doesn't this show kind of the the twisted ability of our hearts to kind of distort the truth? I think we all have a tendency to look at our hard work and our service and our sacrifice, even the grace that we offer in forgiving others, and to start to think that somehow it means that God owes us one. That we've put God... In debt to us, as if our godliness meant that he owed me something extra. Jesus tells this simple parable about a servant, a servant who knows that, well, when he's ticked off item number one on his to-do list for the day, yeah, he knows not to expect a foot rub and a, and a hot meal from his master. No, he just, he just moves on to the next item on the list. Anything else would be silly, not to b- mention kind of presumptuous and fairly arrogant. And so, you also, Jesus says in verse 10, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Jesus makes his point plain and simple because he's just outlined some key responsibilities for his disciples, hasn't he? His disciples, they have a responsibility to watch themselves and make sure they, they don't cause another Christian to stumble. His disciples have a responsibility to keep offering grace, to to forgive one another again and again, pointing each other back to the grace that is found in Jesus. And as challenging as those responsibilities can be, with this simple parable, Jesus speaks into that temptation of thinking that, well, if I've been obedient, I've ticked things off the to-do list, then somehow God owes me something. As if I've been such a good Christian that it puts God in debt to me as if perhaps I've served so hard that now he owes me a break when life is just, it's just too hectic. Or as if I've been so kind to others that now he owes it to me to somehow make sure that all my relationships just run smoothly, even just for a little while now, God, because it just feels like there's conflict at every turn. Or as if I've been so diligent in my Bible reading that he owes it to me to give me just that little bit more self-control when, when temptation comes knocking again. And it, guys, if it feels like I'm having a dig at you, I'm honestly just sharing some of the things that I've wrestled with in my own heart. It is so easy for us to think that our good deeds, our devotion, our service, even our grace might somehow place God in our debt. And yet, as I've been reflecting we see here that Jesus says, no. Forgiving your brother or sister seven times a day, all our good deeds, all our service, none of that is any more than a simple job description of a disciple of Jesus. And in this, Jesus is just gently coming alongside us, reminding us in a very different way, just how precious faith in him is, because it's a gift, it's not something that we can earn or, or rack up credit on. Faith itself is a gift from a generous God who brings us to the feet of Jesus, humbly recognizing how much we need his mercy and delighting to respond to his kindness with all of our lives. That's a lot to get our heads around, right? And so isn't it kind that at this point Luke pauses... In the midst of recounting so much that Jesus taught on this topic, Luke now shows us how this played out with people in this wonderfully rich, colourful story, this beautiful description that on his way to Jerusalem, with every step that Jesus took taking him closer to the cross, actually Luke would highlight for us that, that on that journey, in the midst of teaching such stern words... This is how this overflows in life. Will you look with me again from verse 11? With Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, he's met by a group of 10 men with leprosy. The outcasts of society, so that they have to remain on the outskirts of town. Jesus meets them on his way in. The outskirts of, sorry, the the outcasts of society, they can't come close. They have to yell at him from a distance. They call out for mercy and he gives it to them but in a surprising way. Did you notice how he showed them mercy, how he healed them of their leprosy? He sent them off to see the priests. And that's surprising because that's what a person in that day and age would do when they have been healed of leprosy. And so to experience this healing, these men needed to act as if it had already happened. And of course, we read in verse 14 that as they went, they were indeed cleansed of their leprosy. But then one of them actually only one of them, seeing that he'd been healed, he turned around and he returned to Jesus, praising God, overflowing in thankfulness to him. And look at how things have changed for him. Before, he'd had to stand at a distance. A man condemned as unclean with leprosy. Now, he was cleansed. And he could come close, close enough to fall at Jesus' feet and to thank him. And he was a Samaritan. Luke was very careful to point that out because it matters. For centuries, the Samaritans had hated the Jews just as much as the Jews had hated the Samaritans. Before, he would have stayed well away from a Jewish man like Jesus and certainly not shown him any kind of respect. But now... He falls at his feet in this beautiful sign of, of humble adoration. Here is a man overflowing in thankfulness. But in verse 17, Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And in those, you know, quick questions, Jesus is just making so many points for us, just a, a few to kind of observe. You see, it's clear that in Jesus' mind, this man has, has only done what you would expect when he understands what Jesus has done for him. Oh, this man could have praised God anywhere, but Jesus implies that it was entirely appropriate for him to return to Jesus to praise God, if you will accept that that is who Jesus is. But it seems that there's also something else that sets this Samaritan man apart from the others. As Jesus says, this foreigner is the only one that seems to get it. Actually, that word foreigner is a very rare word in the Greek language and it's not often that from this pulpit here at Trinity you'll hear a preacher taking us back to the, the Greek or the Hebrew. To be honest, that's because, well, one, it can sound pretty pretentious but secondly, more importantly, we actually want you to have confidence in the English translations that you're reading. They're really helpful and accurate for us but I'm going to do it twice tonight, once with this word to start with because it's actually helpful for us to see that this word foreigner, was a really rare rare word in Greek. It would have jarred to those that heard it. Today, we can basically only find it in in Christian writings and a few scattered Jewish writings, but it was very prominent in one very public place. It was the word on the big keep out signs in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. The big keep out signs that said, this is where foreigners can go no further. It was the word that that stipulated every person who was not a Jew that, that they were not welcome to enter. And yet this is the word that Jesus says of this man, this foreigner. He's the one who's come close. He is the one who had previously been excluded from the people of God and yet he is the one who has approached Jesus, praising God, overflowing in thankfulness. And then Jesus said to him such wonderful words of, of love and kindness in verse 19 Rise and go, your faith has made you well. And that should strike us as intriguing. Because remember that all 10 men had demonstrated some kind of faith, some kind of trust. They had to respond to Jesus' initial offer of mercy by trusting that when he said, go to the priests, well, something would happen between point A and point B. But here, this one man is particularly commended for his faith. So there was something about it that set it apart from the other nine in the way that he returned and gave thanks to Jesus, in the way that it overflowed in thankfulness. But there's something else going on that's intriguing too, isn't there? Because Jesus said, your faith has made you well. But isn't he already well? He came back when when he saw that he had been healed. So yes, he has been physically healed. But Luke, and it's good to remember, Luke was a doctor, right? He paid attention to these things. Luke had been very careful in his choice of words through this story. In verse 14, he said that the ten men were cleansed. In verse 15, he reports to us that this man himself, he had seen that he was healed. And when Jesus was describing it, again, he used that word cleansed. Now, cleansed and healed, they're pretty straightforward in what they mean. Cleansed means being made clean, which kind of made sense when the social mindset around leprosy was that that rendered you socially unclean. You needed to be cleansed of it. Healed, well, that is as simple as it sounds. It's to be healed from an illness. But that final word that Jesus says to this man is so much richer. Your faith has made you well. It's actually the same word that that we get the words saved, delivered, rescued. There is a sense that this man is not only healed and cleansed of his leprosy. There's something much more profound going on. Rise and go. Go. Your faith has saved you. This man's faith was clearly more than just trusting that Jesus could, could fix his body. He turned around and he came to praise God, to thank Jesus, to fall at his feet in such deep gratitude that it looks a lot like worship. Arise and go, your faith has made you well. It has delivered you, rescued you, saved you. It seems that this Samaritan man had understood that it wasn't just his health or his social life that had been transformed. He shows us that that beginnings of of a relationship with Jesus, a precious faith that was, was just full of humility and overflowing in thankfulness. And I think it's a wonderful image for us of just how precious faith in Jesus is. Because every disciple of Jesus who has received the gift of faith in him has a before and after story, even if it's not quite as dramatic as this man's. But in some way or another, we were all foreigners to the people of God, separated from his love and kindness, the joy of having peace with our creator, sinners condemned, made unclean by the stain of sin on our heart. We were all longing for hope and purpose and joy in this life and yet running around like it was chasing after the clouds and every time you grasp at it, it's it's gone. And yet now, brought close, given life, shown love and hope and purpose, grace to transform hard hearts, this is the precious gift of faith. And isn't that something worth fighting for? and encouraging and nurturing not only in your life but in the lives of those around you and this week as I've been reflecting on what God is saying to us through this passage in this present season of COVID it seems to me that to use Jesus words things that will cause people to stumble are bound to come in fact at the moment it seems impossible to miss them whether it's the anxiety of the things of this world Or the temptation to treat, you know, the privilege, the amazing privilege of being able to gather together with God's people, the temptation to treat that as trivial. Or the distractions that seem to come from left and right and upon every news feed that we have, the kinds of things that would threaten to divide God's people and drive a wedge between us as we disagree over one thing or another. And yet, friends, this is the precious gift of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are talking about of all of the things that we might treasure in life, in our own lives, and in the lives of others. That is surely the thing that is most precious, most transformative, most worthy of our protection and our encouragement and our nurture. The very great treasure of a faith that not only knows about Jesus and what he does, but loves Jesus for who he is. Now, friends, we're about to stand and, and sing some wonderful words that, that give voice to this, that help us to express some of that gratitude for what Jesus has done in the song, How Marvellous. But first, I wonder if you'll allow me to lead us in prayer using some of these words that we might begin and grow in that overflowing thankfulness to God in Jesus. Will you pray with me? loving heavenly father we stand amazed in the presence of jesus and we wonder how he could love us sinners condemned unclean how marvelous it is how wonderful he is and we ask you that our song shall always be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.